Hello and welcome to the first episode of Yester Yarns. Yester Yarns? Why are you pulling that face? What face? We've yeah, you changed it now. We'll never know then. What's wrong? Is with the voice edited as it goes on or is it done after? It'll all be done after. And it won't be recognizable? No, not at all. It'll be an it's an automated voice, sort of computer man voice. Which I was trying to say to listeners because they're listening to it right now. Not if I'm not happy with it, they're not. You will be. Can I? Yeah. Don't let me stop you. This is Yester Yarns, and I am Callum Eckroyd, your host and uh, playmate. Not um, Playmate? Not playmate, classmate, as we enjoy a different kind of history class. Hello, playmates. No, the other voice you can hear uh, is a computerised voice, but one that is, is will be saying exactly what my researcher... No. ...is saying... Well, we can't even use your name. Not a chance. So what are we calling you then? Um... Scott? Why would I be called Scott? Do I look like a film star to you? What? Hamish. Right, why? He bullied me in high school. Okay. Hamish Jeffries. Don't say his surname. That's not his surname. All right, so Hamish here, as he's now known, is uh, is a history expert. He's gone away to research some incredible historical stories that I had no idea about. Uh, and each episode we're going to do sort of uh, three or four. Three. Right, um, little stories. All properly sourced. Yeah. All properly sourced, um, and they're going to really prize your head open. These he's a he's a professional historian, so he is being paid. Before anyone complains about that, aren't you? Me, I'm not. No, there's no money left for me. But if we make some money, uh, maybe. Uh... Good luck to you. Cheers. Right. Well, I think we should begin. Mark Antony was Julius Caesar's right hand man a titan of Roman politics and Caesar's bestest general. Best? Best general. His major flaw, however, was this. Mark Antony was obsessed with catering. In 54 BC, Caesar invited Antony to join him at the conquest of Gaul, but Antony was routinely late to meetings and was usually tracked down to the catering tent. Furious arguments with cooks about the amount of busiletum per man were everyday occurrences. This was a hard, double-baked wheat biscuit that did not spoil, and Antony made a point of checking every man had enough biscuits. On the dawn of battle itself, you'd be hard-pressed to find a rousing speech of Antony's that did not give reference to full bellies and burping. Even in battle, Antony had one eye on catering. Friends of Caesar reported how unhappy he was with Antony's input, saying he would routinely advise a retreat option to regroup and get the men fed before heading back out. Even in Gaul, where the Roman army enjoyed many comprehensive victories, Mark Antony would suggest the men looked hollow and pushed Caesar to declare a retreat. At the Battle of Bibracte, which was a key moment in the Romans trying to establish a foothold in Gaul, Antony asked those who were hungry to shout in an attempt to prove a point to Caesar. This one-track mind for catering forged a rift between Caesar and his ally that led to him being demoted a few years later back in Italy. Surprisingly, given the emphasis Antony put on food, he didn't have much of an appetite himself, only managing morsels of flatbread and bacon at a time. Indeed, later in his life, his famous lover Cleopatra was disappointed when he would eat little of her great Egyptian banquets, Instead, checking everyone else at the table was full. Servants said of Antony 
that he always had an air of discontent about him, something troubling him. But when a friend of his burped, for that moment, he was truly happy. Wow. I didn't know any of that. I've not heard of that. And that bit about the, um, what was it? The Battle of Brigact. Yeah. Asking all the hungry soldiers to shout in the middle of a fight. That's unbelievable. He obviously did think it was absolutely vital that they were, you know, fully fed. That's very strange. Great work, actually, with that. That's a, that's a brilliant first one to kick us off. Cheers, mate. One thing, though, Hamish. Um, Ooh, go on. When I go through it, mm-hmm. can you just check your notes as we go on so I'm not, like, making any mistakes? Or if you want to add anything in, anything like that. I was. All right, are the notes on your phone, then? What? You've lost me. Uh, the notes. Oh, they're on my phone, yep. Oh. It's just you were, you were like, laughing a bit for that last I one. I was. And I thought you held the phone up and you thought you were filming. Yeah, I was just laughing at the next one. Oh, all right, all right. Well, look forward to this Apology then. accepted. Okay. In 1882, at the age of five, Newt Coleman was adopted from Alexandra Orphanage in London. His early years, however, were not about to get any easier. His parents, who we know only as Theo and May, were paid by a wealthy scientist, Dr. Lamb, to adopt the boy. Dr. Lamb was fascinated by the fringes of society and devised a study to satisfy these fascinations. Hell of a lot of S's. Please don't. Apology returned. Young Newt was this study. Newt was picked out as being an impressionable young boy, often copying the gait and stance of the more popular children. From the moment Theo and May picked Newt up and moved him into their home, they spoke only to one another in an entirely fictional language. Newt was also largely confined within his house and bedroom, so the only time he heard English would be when he received direct conversation from one of his parents. Dr. Lamb also wanted it, so that the fictional conversations were largely positive, with a lot of laughter. In contrast, the English conversations would mainly be neutral or negative, often including direct orders, anger, insults, things like that. And you laughed at this, did you? There's nowhere near enough laughter in this world, mate. We're not even close to the amount there should be. Do you know that? So yes, don't yes. begrudge anyone yeah. for laughing at anything. Well, well, I hope it's got a funny or, or happy turnaround, that's Do all. Do you? Let's see. In 1893, when Newt was 16, Theo died of pneumonia. Oh, for God's And just a year later, May died of consumption, when her body wastes away due to bacterial infection. Theo and May both kept up the conditions of the study until the end, as Dr. Lamb paid for a higher standard of healthcare, but it wasn't enough. Newt was briefly housed with Dr. Lamb himself, who was furious that the study had been sidetracked. By this point, Newt had turned in on himself somewhat, babbling incoherently in an impossible attempt to reconnect with his dead parents. Their language never had any rules, and it was always changing, so learning it was an impossible task, but Newt had been trying for years. When observed by Dr. Lamb, he wrote, The orphan is like a donkey with a carrot, but without the grip a donkey has on reality. Eventually, Newt was deemed irredeemable, and Dr. Lamb voided the entire study. After a gruelling period on the harsh streets of London's East End, Newt was admitted to an asylum after his weak grasp on the English language totally slipped away. Leading alienists of the time interviewed the boy, like Dr Thomas Taylor who commented, 
the experiment has ravaged him. There is more sense found in a trifle banister than in this half-brain. I retire my efforts after only two sessions. A, a trifle banister? Trifle? It's a sort of sponge cake with custard. Yeah, yeah I know what a trifle is, but is that what, that's what Dr. Taylor used in his report? Yes, that's in the literature. Incredible. The babbling orphan, as he became known, was never successfully interpreted, but his language was believed to be a hybrid of the fictional language Lamb set up with his own adaptations. Only a few words remained consistent and could be translated. Shiolsta, which meant milk. Fragperky, meaning more or again. And Delsat Solstba, which roughly translated as fully operational. And he died, also of consumption funnily enough, at the asylum in either 1905 or 1906, at about 26 years of age. Jesus. Shaw packed a lot into those 26 years though. Can we do one to finish instead right, of two? I'm not be- finished with that one. That, that, that's horrible. What a life in the name of science. I was surprised Trifle was around then. Yeah, when was Trifle invented? Dunno. Can you know? I mean, uh, can you check? Google is down. Use Bing. Well, let's see if Bing is working. Or Delsat Solst Bar. What's that? Fully operational. Fully operational, yeah. In Newtish. Trifle dates back to the 1590s. Well, that could have been a story in itself. Right, just want to finish, yeah? Because I want to get blackout drunk with my mates tonight and it's already early. Well, that's not a good reason. It's not a million miles away. Well, which, which one's a strong finish then? Neither. They've been and gone for this for episode, say. I'd say. Go with Hood on the Pot. Okay. Robin Hood was a legendary outlaw and archer stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, and living out of Sherwood Forest with his band of merry men. Not so merry, though, was Hood himself, who suffered with perpetual diarrhoea most of his adult life. Is this real? Did I say I needed to leave, or did I imagine it? Is this real? Don't start what you do, Don't start drinking now. No drinking in the studio, First, it says. yes, it's real. It's all properly sourced. I have a PhD in history... Right. As you well know. Secondly, we've overrun because you wanted research on trifle that was extracurricular. It's beyond my pay dream it. You only had to Google Bing it. it. I don't think you get it. I want to be as best as a newt tonight. Fine. In three hours time I want to make Newt Coleman sound like Dickens. I don't Fine. want to remember a fucking thing in the morning. Fine, I said. Robin Hood suffered with petrol diarrhea most of his life. Right. The cause of Hood's runs are unknown, but it was likely the trigger was a Little John cooking mistake. John was the cook for the camp, and the link between undercooked meats and illness was not yet known. Hood mainly orchestrated operations from the camp, rarely straying further than the forest in order to toilet freely and stay hydrated. Whilst this is a new part of our understanding of the legend, the fact remains that Robin Hood was an exceptional bowman and did protect the camp, their treasure, and hunt when not consigned to the bed or toilet. This new understanding is rumoured to feature in future reincarnations of the Hood character, yada yada yada. We don't need that bit. We deal in facts, not rumours here. But how interesting. I mean, that would have been you know, potentially deadly as well back then, so... 
I wonder if he was angry at little John. Definitely changes the way you imagine him. I think I've got more respect for him now. Are you, are you off? No, I'm just doing a dress rehearsal. Of course oh, I'm right, off. Right, so, um, but you've done so. You, you've done the next two weeks. So we've got next weeks and then the weeks after prepared for you. Yeah? I imagine so. What is it? Whatever you want to be done in your head is done. Let's settle on that. Then we're both smiling. Okay. And uh, I'll drop you a link for the post-prod breakdown on Zoom that we said about you. Uh, tomorrow, is that all right? When's tomorrow? What is the... Yeah, tomorrow's oh, good. Okay, good. All right, speak tomorrow. Slam the door. Right, well, I don't think I knew any of that before today, so I've really enjoyed that. I think it's been a very, very insightful first episode. Um, like I say, I'll do the breakdown with, with Justin and... Uh, We'll see how we can improve for next week, and uh, I'll double check that this all all accurate and stuff because I've got a few doubts about just a few of the details. But as I say, he's he's uh, he's been doing this stuff for years, so I've got no reason to doubt him. So yeah, more of the same next time, and uh, I'll see you then, playmates, classmates. Bye for now. <laughs>